as well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts. One of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer. And you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to beer52.com slash party. That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. And cover just £5.95 for the postage. And you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. You don't even need to leave the house. Think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers. Each month, Beer 52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world. Recent cases have included beer from the Alps, New Zealand, the USA, Ireland, Korea and Germany. So if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different, Beer 52's Craft Beer Discovery Club is for you. And if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like. Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Just go to beer52.com slash party and get your first case of eight beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com slash party. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This episode features John Sweeney, someone I've been consuming so much of his work lately by complete coincidence. I started watching a Scientology documentary on Amazon Prime that I talked to John about, he pops up on it, because his documentary for Panorama, Scientology and Me, back in 2007, really was a landmark documentary for Scientology and so many subsequent documentaries cite that work and feature John as a talking head or or as a contributor based on the work that he did. And I was planning to come to that later in the piece because I really wanted to talk about Putin and Navalny. And John has met Putin face-to-face, has doorstepped him. And the story he tells about that in this episode is sensational. It is... (laughs) You'll know it when you get to it, but he describes... Effectively, the state he's in when he meets him. Oh boy, are you in for a treat there. Uh, we talk about Navalny um, and, and, and about the politics around Putin, about how secure he is, whether he can be removed and how. So a really good chat about Russia that I'd, I'd sort of planned to start with and then move on to Scientology. But the conversation meanders around and there are so many times, obviously in the history of this show, I've wondered aloud whether... Going beyond an hour would be uh, a wise move. Just because I'm often left thinking, oh, I wish I'd been able to ask about that. Or going beyond an hour and a half. This episode is, the interview is nearly two hours long. Which, and I tell you now, by the end, I, there were still a million questions I wanted to ask him. So hopefully we can get John back. Because he's, in, in, there are very few journalists who have found themselves face-to-face with so many bullies. He puts himself in harm's way in a way that very few journalists in this country do. And he's got some remarkable stories to tell as a result of that. And it's a really good insight into him and, and how he's ended up in the position that he's in, making the sorts of podcasts and television and documentaries and radio things that he, that he does. Why is John Sweeney always at the centre of these things, having the guts to take on Putin, Trump, who we talk about, um, Scientology and others. Um, so it's a really good profile of John Sweeney and, and how he came to have this career and what drives and what motivates him with some amazing stories about all sorts of things, which are some of them, uh, the things that I've just mentioned, Russia, Scientology, Trump, uh, 
Russia and Sputnik in in the UK and and their influence or, or lack of it here. Um, and just a load of other stuff. So many great stories. So many other things. But also his personal experience and the, the the stress of the job and his resistance and resilience and stamina and the way that organisations over time have or haven't stood behind him as a member of staff. So this is a this is there's so many different conversations within this long, sprawling, fascinating, entertaining. It's like a box set about a million different things all in one episode. He is a fascinating guy. Um, I began by asking John, um, well, I began by putting to him a quote that Donald Trump had said about him. Trump had called, it, uh, Trump had called him lousy, thick and disgusting. I asked John whether, whether that was true. Uh, yeah, it's all true. I am lousy, I am thick and I am disgusting. Um, but before we go any further, you've got a slight kind of Brummy accent, Matt. Is that right? Well, that you're, 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 you're quite close. The East Midlands, I'm from Nottingham. Right, but that's vulgar. And what are you doing on the media? I mean, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to say goodbye. Uh, goodbye, folks. I'm, I'm used to talking to posh people. <laughs> but you're, you've got some interesting vowels in there because you've got a kind of northern sounding or midlands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I love. Uh, I, uh, uh, sorry, fuck off. Are you forest or um, forest? Uh, yes, forest. Yes. Proudly. So my uncle Reg um, used to live in West Bridgeford. Oh, lovely! Um, and he was a. Um, uh, my dad was from Birkenhead, and um, was an apprentice in Camelads. So then the war started, and he went to sea as a ship's engineer in the Battle of the Atlantic. And his big mate was Uncle Reg, who also did the same. Um, I'm pretty sure it's the same thing. Reg was so angry that they wouldn't let him go uh, from the shipyard to go and work, do his bit in the Merchant Navy, bring home the bacon, that he punched the, the foreman so they'd sack him so he could have to, you know, so off, oh, uh, smashing stuff. And when I was little, we used to go, and I think I caught my first ever fish. This isn't about Donald Trump. Um, in, in the River Trent in a foggy day in October. And it was amazing. Um, it was really good. Um, I'm going to close the window. Because um, the... you're from, you, you were born on Jersey, is that right? But your accent doesn't my sound. Dad, my dad moved uh, to Jersey in 1950 and they left in 1960. I was born in 58, so I don't know it, but I'm from there. And I, I like following stories up there every now and then for a laugh. But um, we moved around, but your accent, I found out this um, a while back, is, is formed roughly between the age of five and 10. Okay. When we lived in Alteringham, um, just uh, in Cheshire, just south of Manchester, and then uh, we moved to um, to Hampshire, um, and so I can do posh when I'm about to be arrested. I'm terribly sorry, officer. I again. <laughs> and I can do fuck off uh, <laughs> as well. And and I and um, but I when I'm angry or upset, I start. You can hear me slip back, and I say things like Luke and Luke, and uh, and that's a bit Liverpudlian, as my mum and dad were from Liverpool, uh, Liverpool, but essentially a bit of soft soft South Manchester, um, not proper whip it, but that kind of way. 
and then and then I can go hello. So here we are. I work for the BBC. I don't have more than never mind. Well, when oh, you yeah. got when, when, you, when you got into an argument with that bloke from Scientology, you should have you should have turned you should have dialed up the scouse on him. That would have put the window. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't want to. I didn't want to frighten him. I just wanted to make a point. Uh, yeah, um, I if you haven't seen it, um, uh, people listening, um, I did a a panorama called Scientology and Me, and there, there was a new editor. Sandy Smith, and the previous editor had been a bit boring. He wouldn't, uh, for example, um, use me, and he wanted to spice it up, and he wanted to get the show, uh, get good ratings and mums on seats. <laughs> when I uh, when I did the screen, just before the show went out on the Monday, they put it, uh, Scientology put me screaming. It's up on YouTube, folks. Um, there's a 40-second clip, and then there's a longer version of the whole film, Scientology and me, half an hour. And I've written a book about it, Church Affair. But anyway, the editor, Sandy Smith, said, for fuck's sake, John, not like that. <laughs> but it is, uh, we were, I was going to come on to Scientology later in the interview, but it, it, kind of the way the conversation has gone already has kind of meant that we've started with it. But it's beautifully planned, Matt, beautifully planned. It is a, it is a, it's kind of a well-known clip um, amongst those of us who've, who've watched Scientology documentaries, and there's yours, there's Going Clear, there's the Louis Theroux one, there's the fantastic Leah Remini one that's on Amazon Prime at the moment that you're on as well. And the by thing the way, that, which is, well, one of them is so biased, against i think it's the going clear it's so biased against scientology it shows them shouting at me but not me shouting at them come on <laughs> but anyone who's seen that clip and, and i mean it must be kind of cringeworthy for you for people to i'm sure you get asked about it all the time but what really struck me about it was they are they are trailing you a lot and they're they're using a lot of intimidation techniques that guy is it tommy who's right in your face yeah tommy davis who looks a bit like tom cruise he's kind of like sharp-faced um, looks kind of military almost, and they are provoking you in every possible way. And every time I see that clip, I think it's a miracle actually that you didn't scream at him sooner. Like you actually held out a remarkably long time. You were there <laughs> for the beginning of the interview. <laughs> no. Oh man, God, that really. Um, it was that scared me. I was uh, sorry. Sorry, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing all your guests are like this. Um, so I was good for six days, and I said to uh, we had two. You know, is ever um, never enough money. The BBC project. So there's just the producer Sarah Mole and the uh, brilliant Northern Irish cameraman Bill Bram. By the way, BBC Northern Irish cameramen are spectacularly wonderful because they have. They've been doing riots since they were 18, um, filming them. Um, and <laughs> yeah, to be clear, and so super, super tough and well experienced and great. And um, they get um, uh, they get intimidation, they understand it, they know what's going on. So, and Sarah was uh, really, really super smart and super cool. And she's from Essex, and her she had a plan, talks like this. Yeah, John, you've seen Jurassic Park, ain't ya? I said, yes, sir, I have. And yeah, well, you know that bit where they have the tethered goat, yeah? For the T-Rex. And then the T-Rex the, the comes. And all you have to do, John, is all you have to do is bleat. You can bleat, can't ya? 
And that was Sarah's plan. So that what she'd done is she'd analyzed what Scientology did, which is they, they come at you in a serious way and they try and knock you off your horse and they, they try and frighten you and they film it. So the policy was with us is that Bill had to have his big camera with batteries on him all the time, but also Sarah had a small camera and I had to wear two radio mics all the time uh, until I um, went to my ho hotel room at midnight or whatever. And then, and so, and by the way, going to the loo with two radio mics on, it's incredibly fucking annoying. You've got to switch off a nuclear power station before you can have a piss. But um, it, it worked so that every time they attacked us, we had it on film. We never lost a frame of them attacking Brilliant. us. Brilliant. And, and so she was, and, and so that it was, uh, it was bloody, bloody. Anyway, after, the moment after I screamed, um, I, um, we went to um, have lunch somewhere and I was down and, um, you know, hey, if anybody ever wants to get on telly and they, they're worried about making a fool of themselves, look at that. Anyway, so I said to, um, I said, I'm sorry. And Bill said, I'm going to butcher his accent. He said, uh, John, I just need to uh, let you know that I'm leaving the BBC and I'm joining the Org. May the Holy <laughs> And I went, what? What? And he said, oh, fuck off, John. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, there was a sense, anyway, we knew they put it out, but what it was was fantastic publicity for the program. It got 5 million uh, views. This is back in the day, 2007. It was a water cooler moment. And this is before Twitter, but I can remember the emails started coming in. Um, and all the, the coverage was was very negative, and certainly the American TV. You know, look at this crazy guy. My poor son Sam uh, was on an exercise machine at a gym. Um, there was like two exercise machines together, watching uh, uh, BBC News, and and his mate goes, "Look at that nutter!" And Sam goes, <laughs> "That's my dad." <laughs> <laughs> so these stories go on and ever, but there was two more. There's one was an email from a uh, Mr. Sweeney, you're my hero, but then I am the vice president of the Royal College of Psychiatry. Because <laughs> oh wow, yeah, psychiatrists and psychiatry can get things wrong, but it is nothing other than an attempt by good people to help the mentally ill, the mentally challenged. A difficult, difficult job, and so um, I've become a weird pinup for psychiatrists. Uh, which has been useful. Um, Not I as a result of that breakdown, it has to be said. <laughs> yeah. Well, they invited me. They invited me to the um, to the Excel Centre uh, for the World Symposium of Psychiatrists. And, and I got uh, Sir Simon Wesley, who's become a mate, we drink in the same pub, um, to, um, to, to pre pretend to be John Travolta, an apostle for the Church of Scientology, and to dance, to um, get on the stage dancing to Saturday Night <laughs> Fever. And then I got all the other psychiatrists, the big ones on the planet, 5,000 of them in the Excel Centre, to dance like that. They can take the piss out of themselves. Anyway, that's enough about psychiatrists. Um, the other one was from the um, uh, Lambeth, um, Green Watch of the Lambeth River Fire Brigade, who said, we were with you the whole way, I'm going to swear, and we were with you the whole way, and frankly, we all thought, 
you should have punched that cunt. <laughs> wow. But I didn't. And that is why the BBC thought about sacking me. But they, they because I didn't swear, they couldn't sack me. So that's yeah. all that that would have done it actually. That had it, had you not shouted but sworn, that you'd have been toast. Yeah. Yes, yes. Also, Mark Thompson was a director general those days, and he was a big tough guy. He did. Um, um, I'm going to jump subject so quickly. It's kind of. Uh, he did a panorama about Maxwell, and he taped Maxwell threatening him, and so Mark knew what it was like to, um, you know, to um, look a big, terrifying beast um, in the eyes and say, no, I'm not, uh, we're not surrendering, we're not backing down on this. And, um, and I think he, he realised that Scientology was a bit like Robert Maxwell, and, and therefore I was allowed to, um, uh, to live another day. I did get told off, um, but hey, that wasn't the first time. <laughs> it takes remarkable guts to do what you do, though. Uh, we'll stay on Scientology for now because um, they they follow you, they look you in the eye, they intimidate you. And I think sometimes you can watch that panorama and your other documentaries that you've done with similar subject matter and think, well, this is John Sweeney from the BBC. You know, he's got backup. Um, he's not really under threat. But when you're in the middle of it and you're just stood on a freeway with one cameraman and a sound guy, you probably feel far more exposed than you appear on the screen. I'm so in his law, the editor of Private Eye said that after I did Scientology and then I did a couple of um, documentaries in Russia where the Russian with the FSB, the secret police, the KGB, um, they followed me around and um, we were harassed by the, um, the Kremlin's tame media in St. Petersburg and in Moscow. Uh, we were held in the police station, detained, messed around. I was accused of doing something I hadn't done by the media. And um, th they, and then we're followed around. And then there's me in a car being followed around. And his lob said, it's just another Swedish film. He just likes being followed around. <laughs> and there's a bit of truth in that, in that I'm, I like uh, staying in bed and I like going to the pub. And the only thing that gets me out of bed in the morning or out of the pub in the evening is um, telling um, stories powerful people don't want told. So the moment a big beast comes along and says, you shut up, don't talk, then, then that engages my attention. And, then, and, 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 and those are the stories I like telling and I like doing. And, and I've never been... I've never been the diplomat, I, I have no chance now, but I've never was a candidate to become the diplomatic editor of the BBC. Your Volivant's a really excellent ambassador. Or, you know, a royal reporter, or to be honest, in the lobby prime minister. May I congratulate you on only 100,000 deaths, and let's hope there will just be um, only uh, a few more. I can't do that. I don't want to do that. It's, it strikes me as being daft um, and pathetic. But I do like doing proper stories where you know you're onto something when you start getting a, a litter of letters from Carter Fuck saying, uh, desist, um, you know, I'm a, I mean, I, uh, David Barclay uh, was the owner of the Telegraph, he's got twins, and he died the other day. And there was a series, I did a, 
I did a, um, a, a piece for the Spin, BBC Two, 1996, I think. And then I went uh, about them, a piece in the Observer, and I um, went on Radio Guernsey. Um, Radio Guernsey's Good Morning Lobster Pop program. Um, and, uh, and I said something which was wrong, and they sued me for criminal libel and civil libel in Britain and in France. And I ended up going to court in Saint-Malo. And the, the, the guy on before me was taken off in chains for stealing cars. And then it was my turn. Um, because I had criminally libeled the Barclay twins. Um, now, they owned, at that point, they owned a company which owned a bit of a company which owned the National Enquirer, da 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 um, By the way, they, they um, and eventually uh, we lost the case, the BBC paid the fine, 20,000 francs. But um, it was, that was interesting and that was challenging. But in the middle of it, Anyway, I did another panorama in 2013 about the uh, about the Barclay Twins again, and they have a, a chap on Sark who runs a Sark newsletter. He used to work with them, doesn't now, but he writes their stuff most of the time. They deny it. Um, I will say he's um, a separate entity. But anyway, Sark newsletter accused me of, while I was in Sark, I went to the pub, and I started a fight. I accosted some young women. Um, I fell off my bike um, while inebriated and I urinated over a baby. And there was a BBC investigation which found that, in fact, um, I had been to the pub and I put my chair um, over um, my coat over a chair and the chair fell over. That was the fight. There was no fight. Um, I, uh, the young women and their mother remembered meeting me was the highlight of their holiday, which we were doing in commemoration, commemoration of their late father, uh, husband, who died of cancer on a holiday 10 years before the weather was rubbish and it was all miserable. And then I made their particular night more fun. Um, and they were happy to give evidence on that if, the, if it came to it. And I was cleared of urinating over a baby. Uh, I didn't do that, <laughs> but but that is the kind of nonsense. And like this is a letter. Um, um, this is this is kind of legal threats, threatening letters. It's the kind of stuff you get used to. By the way, I should say the Church of Scientology say that I'm a bigot, um, a, a liar, and a fantasist. Um, the Barclay twins say that I'm a thug, a bully, out of control, and out for revenge. Um, Da, 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 yeah, da, Trump da. said you were lousy, thick, and disgusting. Yeah, uh, I am. I am. I am. I'm not. I'm the not, heck of a CV yeah. you've got. <laughs> <laughs> Look at all the worst film quotes, all of what poster. The, the, um, the, um, the, uh, I've just, uh, I've done a podcast called Hunting Jelen about Jelen Maxwell. And this lovely guy called Dave, who I've never met, he lives um, in, um, in Weatherby somewhere. Anyway, he, he fell off his ladder while listening to the podcast. There's a, there's a couple of jokes in it, which are quite funny, I think. And he laughed and he fell off the ladder while decorating. And he's in the hospital with a broken arm. <laughs> like, and somebody said, but it's a great blurb though. I laughed so much, I fell off the ladder. <laughs> broke my arm. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's kind of my... I hadn't seen the bit where Trump called me... I knew he called me thick. He called me thick to my face. But he said, lousy and disgusting somewhere else, did he? I've... Um, I should dig that out. Let's okay. just, you said something fascinating about what it is that, that drives you. The only thing that gets you out of bed in the morning, gets you out of the pub in the evening is this taking on these big beasts. 
a lot of journalists might go into journalism in various strands with with the intent of becoming a journalist like you and then they end up doing other stuff what is it about you and your you seem to have a remarkable stamina that is, that is not only to withstand pressure from Putin, Trump, Scientology, and all sorts of other people, all sorts of other oppressive regimes and organisations and individuals. What? Where does that strength come from, and where does that drive come from? I would say my mum and dad, who were separately um, pretty amazing people. I mean, my dad was in the Battle of the Atlantic, um, at age 18, 19, as a third engineer. The chief engineer was a drunk played the piano and didn't go down in the engine room. And so like a 19 year old was, was running the ship, um, the ship's engines. And if the engines stopped, then everybody would get torpedoed. Um, so that's real pressure. Um, but he also had a wonderful sense of humor. Um, my mum too. My mum was um, in the Liverpool Blitz uh, as a schoolgirl. And I can remember reporting from Yugoslavia and we were in a hotel in Osijek in Eastern Croatia, very near um, the front line with Milosevic's Serbia and things were getting very horrible. Um, and they got worse and worse and worse. But uh, one day um, shells piled in um, and um, you know, the windows of the hotel I was staying in were broken. And I phoned up my mum uh, I got out of there and I found my mum. I said, you know, the hotel windows are broken. Oh, yes, that happened to us eight times during the war. <laughs> like, so when a bomb falls, bang, the windows go out. So no direct hits, but a bomb can fall 100 yards away and the, the pressure. So I, I had the sense of, of them uh, being um, ballsy, um, kind of naturally, and I've got it. I also would say that... Um, my granny, my mum's mum, was a theatrical landlady. She had a lovely house, a, a bloke. My grandfather left the home quite early on. And so basically my mum was brought up um, by my grandma, who effectively is a single mum. And she was, um, uh, they had a nice big house, which they lost because of a leasehold thing. Um, it was all sad and desperate. I hate leases. Um, anyway, um, some of the customers she looked after, I met, it was a lovely story, I met Richard Bryars, you know, who older folk will know who he is, but he was a wonderful, funny actor. His best thing was a sitcom in the 70s called The Good Life. Set in Surbiton. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is that where you live? Well, I did for many years, actually, yeah. yeah. So that's, <laughs> we would always say The Good Life, and I was like, what's that? So I had to, I had to look it up to get the yeah, right Yes, so um, yeah, I used to live in um, in Southfields and then Wimbledon Park for a long time. So Surbiton's always seen a bit of a kind of uh, a shining city upon a hill for me. <laughs> I've always revered it. Uh, anyway, but um, got some great pubs, uh, by the way. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's easily easily mocked. Um, but um, I met Richard uh, Bryars, and I said, "My my um, my grand Mrs. Owen." Um, I think um, you say, and yes, Mrs. Owen, she cooked our wedding breakfast. Fantastic lady. Anyway, one of the other uh, guests, my auntie Marjorie, told me this story. Um, she lives in the um, very near the Ford plant, at Halewood in Liverpool, and I saw her um, um, before the virus. Um, but anyway, she told me this story, which was that there was a sculptor who was very posh 
um obviously from you know whatever uh someone very nice barch or something like this but very very posh and he did nude sculptures and uh, he did one of a, of a man and my grandma um mrs owen uh, went into his room once when he wasn't there and dusted the place and she 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 dusted this nude um man model thing and by mistake knocked off the willy uh, and, and stuck it stuck it back on the wrong way round because she was a bit uh, daft <laughs> and this bloke said mrs owen have you been interfering with my nude <laughs> so so i would say uh in answer to your question some hours ago that that what we've got uh, is that the, the telling of a good story of a funny story is the primary point of life on earth both sides of my family the sweeney's and the owens and all i want to do is to sit somebody down and that's why i love podcasts is to sit somebody down almost as if they're in the pub a virtual cheshire cheese or oh, toucan or a list of series of pubs i stop but sit them down and tell them a story and in my experience, the best stories are stories powerful people don't want told. So it's not as if I'm a complete nutter. It's just I want to tell. I want to tell you a good story, but it's not going to be easy for if it's an easy story to tell then somebody else is already there. There's a press conference, a press release, there's a PR firm, all of that. It's the stories that people, the PR firm, the governments, whoever they are, the big church with lots of money, though it's not really a church at all. Those people, we don't want this story to appear. Hello, that's where I start. But lots of people like telling good stories, and there are lots of good storytellers out there. And pubs up and down the country and around the world are full of people who know how to tell great stories. What makes you different is you plonk yourself in the middle of those stories at, it seems to me, huge personal risk. You seem to have a, a, a higher threshold than the average person, to put it lightly, for absorbing a certain amount of provocation, of pressure, of intrusion into your life and your rights. Yes, um, I don't mind that generally, and it's been all right. Um, and have you built up that tolerance over time, or have you always been pretty resilient? I, um, I was, well, the moment when we left, um, Altrincham and moved to Chandler's Ford. I found it really upsetting and sad because I had some great friends and I loved my school and I and it and I and I was bullied um, and it was dark for a bit um, and a number of things happened. The first of which was I realised that a sense of humour, taking the piss out of yourself, was a shield. And, and it was a bloody good one. And so, and I had a natural... Preaching to the choir here, John. <laughs> yeah, but I had a natural wit from my mum and dad, from my family, from my wider family, and boy, did I use it. The second thing is that, um, that my mum was worried about me. Um, you know, there were times I can remember crying in assembly in my new primary school at the age of 10. Um, and... And she um, she um, brought me to go to elocution lessons uh, in Southampton at a little drama school. And 
um, there are a number of ironies here. The first of which was that they, she wanted me to lose my Northern accent because I was going bullied for it. The drama school were delighted I had a Manchester accent and cast me in all, all the character parts with a Manchester accent, which was, and they, they, they kind of loved it and they just souped it up. So it's slightly souped up because of that. The other slightly weird consequence was that you, I, at the age of 10, I did voice projection lessons so I could project my voice. You are not, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, what, so from being a bit of a wreck I, um, um, and being bullied at school, it weaponized me um, with, frankly, one of the loudest voices uh, as a reporter, which can be useful. If I want to ask somebody a question and they're leaving a press conference, they stop and turn because, because, because it sounds like a fucking jumbo jet flying. <laughs> Uh, and, and that was and that was a that was a weird consequence of this sort of dark moment. The other thing is I don't like bullies, um, and that that got into me. Uh, I did a little bit, you know. I was I did a, some bullying at school, which I do deeply regret. Uh, regret when you're 13, 14, your hormones are wrong. By the time I was in the sixth form, I used to stop fights and got known for it. So I, I, um, uh, but I believe. Um, in standing up for the underdog, for somebody who's being bullied or whatever, and that gets me going. So there's there's a bit of that, I think. Um, I uh, there's a bit of a ten year old boy who is scared and frightened, who doesn't want to cry again in front of everybody else, who is now going to go for it. And if I can tell a joke in the middle of it, that's what's really fun is, is like stopping everything and, and then telling a joke. One of the, like the Scientology stuff, what's weird is that, um, that uh, you know, Sarah and Bill, my producer and my cameraman, were wonderful, great friends, still are to this day. And, um, uh, um, but they take the piss out of me. And there's a moment, because uh, we've got hours and hours of this, the other, um, Scientology uh, mind there's a guy called Mike Rinder and at one point I said I want to interview the Pope of Scientology David Miscavige who's a psychotic goes around beating people up they, they deny that they say that I'm a liar a bigot etc and um, Mike said no John you're not going to interview David Miscavige and I said why not because you're an asshole John at which point Sarah started the corpse and Bill for once started corpsing as well so my fucking team are laughing at me and that's the moment when mike rinder thought i can't continue in the church of scientology anymore because clearly he wanted to be in our gang because yes. the, the jokes in our gang were better by the way there's a wonderful book which i advise everybody to read and it's called on the psychology of military incompetence by norman h dixon um, who was a, a royal engineer, and um, and he um, he he blew himself up in a minefield. But um, so he, it's a book, you know. The author knows what he's talking about. Military incompetence, he knows his stuff. But, but he looked at six great, awful military defeats um, um, by the British Army from the fall, uh, the retreat from Kabul in 1841 to the fall of Singapore. And each and every time you have a lack of intelligence, a lack of not knowing what's happening on the other side of the fence, also a lack of intelligence um, 
in, in, in being um, thoughtful and open to what's going on. And the antidote to that is having a sense of humor because through jokes in war zones, in my own experience, people can tell you things that sound bad, cold, but wrapped inside a joke, there's a real truth to that. And the greatest um, British general, for, as far as I'm concerned, and many others is Bill Slim, who was, um, and I've written a novel about, uh, in part about um, people like him, called Elephant Moon, which is, is so well, you can get it on Amazon. But, uh, but uh, Bill Slim and the 14th Army went a thousand miles backwards, the longest retreats in the history of the British Army, and then a thousand miles forwards, the longest advance in the history of the British Army. And he had a wonderful sense of humor. And there's a moment when they're, they're, they are being pushed back by the Japanese and they're endlessly retreating. They have a plan to stop. The plan is wonderful. There's Bill Slim, his, um, his um, slightly younger generals than him, the colonels and majors, and then the lowliest officer there, the weather lieutenant, lifts up his hand and said, it's going to rain, i.e. the plan won't work. They're going to have to carry on retreating. And Bill writes in his memoir, I could have shot him. But an environment in which the lowliest person in the, in the room can raise their hand and do something and say something and will be listened to and respected is a far better thing. And so I, I kind of believe all of this passionately as a, as a thing. And it's, it's about free speech, but it's also about, um, you know, intelligent analysis of what's going on. But to do that, you want to have an environment where there's no fear. And it's kind of why I've never in my life done, you know, I've never turned over, um, I haven't, maybe I'm wrong to do this, but I haven't turned over Oxfam or Marks and Spencers because there isn't much of a client, you know, I'm sure they do things wrong, but not very wrong, not consistently wrong. Whereas Mike Trump Rinder is, uh, you know, someone you mentioned who you have that initial showdown with, or he's there, certainly present in that first Scientology documentary you make for Panorama. Seems like such a hopeful individual now. He's, he's been crucial in exposing what Scientology does, having been a senior member of the organisation. And it's so strange, this Amazon documentary. It's on... I started watching it the other week. I've always been interested in Scientology documentaries for the same reasons that, that you want to make them. Um, and I bought Hey You, which is a subscription service through Amazon Prime, which is basically reality telly. I bought it the other week because I've become obsessed with the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. <laughs> and I was scrolling through. It's the best reality show I've ever seen. It's, it's phenomenal telly. And I'm scrolling through for other stuff to watch. And this Leah Remini documentary series is on there, three series of it. And I recognised, I think she'd had a small part in Cheers and Saved by the Bell and other things. And as a result of your Panorama documentary, you're, you're a big figure in that world and you you're in a few of the episodes and there's a bit in one of the episodes so just in case people listening to this haven't seen as, as much of this material as, as you and i have mike rinder really is was for a period of time a senior member of the church of scientology and was an intimidating figure um on and off camera and now he's left and he's making this documentary series and i really I kind of feel for him because in each episode they're meeting people whose lives were made hell and he was often part of that hell he was often in the room he was often someone you know intimidating them 
you then sit in a room with him having had this confrontation where he's called you an asshole and he's been there glaring at you and Tommy Davis is screaming in your face. And there's a bit in one of the episodes where there's you and a couple of other journalists sat across the table from them and it's all it's all civil. But you're pretty robust with Leah at one point, I think. And I'm sure I'm not misremembering this because you interviewed her for that documentary where she's one of the celebrities that was telling you that, you know, all this Xenu stuff's made up and, you know, this all sounds... Where have you got this information from? Um, I mean, I think it, it showed a real strength of character on your part that even afterwards, and these people have left and they're making a documentary that's effectively supporting the work you've done, even in that environment, you weren't afraid to say, actually, I've, I found you quite difficult to deal with at the time. You know, you, you were still able to effectively speak truth to power years later. Well, yes, I'm just... Um, uh, maybe it's a personality disorder. <laughs> like that, I kind of uh, oh, almost almost got you to split the water there. That would be fun. Um, the um, no, I mean, I kind of yeah, why not? Uh, the, the, and and I think that is um, uh, my Liverpool genes uh, a bit, um, and not um, I'm not a massive fan of the aristocracy, <laughs> or rather. I'm a big fan of the aristocracy of the human spirit. Um, and you can find courage, um, real courage, moral courage in, uh, around the world, wherever you go. But, it, um, but it's often not in the, um, in the most beautiful places um, where the carpet is, um, is an inch deep. You know, it's often not those places. Um, so you say yeah. something in that episode that really struck me and knowing the things that you've investigated. And I think I'm, I, I may garble the words here, but I think I've got the intent right, that you have investigated, you know, th there's not basically an, an oppressive regime on earth that's treated you as badly as Scientology has. I would, um, so that was, well, I made that remark um, a couple of years ago. So, um, what happened with Scientology was it was an invasive attack into um, uh, uh, into your mind space. And then when I came home, they came to my neighbours. Um, it was, you know, uh, they mucked around with family members. Um, my, I mean, it was, I never felt very, very afraid because basically it's a big American kind of thing. It was creepy, they were sending private eyes around. Um, my son... Sam, he was like fifth. When was it? Two thousand and seven. How many years ago? Is Fourteen that? years ago now. Crikey! Well, yeah, so he would have been fifteen, and um, uh, fifteen, sixteen. And he said, uh, "Dad, can you lend me um, uh, twenty quid because I'm going to the pub um, with my mates tonight?" I said, "But Sam, I gave you a ten on a Wednesday." I said, "That Dad, that's fine. I don't want any money from you." I just want you to know that I'm joining the Church of Scientology. For fuck's sake! <laughs> <laughs> He's got that over you forever. Yeah, so he used to blackmail me. Like uh, <laughs> they and they, they, they were, were uh, and when I was away or something like that, I'd come back, uh, and there, there were books of Scientology. I mean, their books were open. They'd been reading them to wind me up. Uh, but I was I was I was afraid of my kids joining that. My daughter Molly was. I think just too smart and too tough ever to give those. Uh, and Sam was winding me up, you know, it, it, uh, it wasn't a real thing. Um, but that was the, 
that was the thing that scared me a little bit about then. The worst thing for me, but since then, I would say that the worst thing that happened to me was happened last year when essentially I was trying to do a, a panorama about Tommy Robinson. And I interviewed a supporter of his called Lucy, who'd fallen out with him. And she um, um, was very convincing because it, this was true. She'd fallen out with him and Tommy Robinson had put his online hate mob onto her. And one of them had threatened her with an acid facial. Now, what happened was that she secretly filmed me. And my job was to wine and dine her. Like the old Fleet Street reporter I am, I'm an old school reporter. I can't pay her any money, not a penny, and I never would. But what I can do is wine and dine her. And she was saying, oh, let's have another drink. This is great. She enjoyed my company, really truthfully. At the same time, she was secretly filming me. And what happened was that she sold the footage, I'm told, um, for £7,000 to Tommy Robinson. And then he put out a grossly unfairly edited um, uh, film um, and he showed that outside the BBC office in Manchester. I don't work there, but never mind. And basically the BBC bosses hated it. They weren't Mark Thompson, who having faced off with um, Robert Maxwell, you know, he'd gone by then. And the new director general was Tony Hall, who was, I'm afraid in my view, a coward and didn't have the courage to put out our film attacking Tommy Robinson. And I got, I found footage of him talking to neo-Nazis or the far right in Germany about the, for too long the German people have lived under the guilt of Adolf Hitler. Now that is catnip to those people. You shouldn't say it. He should not have said it anywhere. And he certainly shouldn't have said it to the far right in Bavaria in Germany, which is what he did. And so we had a big panorama to put on that, but they kept on not putting it out because they wanted rid of me over this. Now, my fault was that I drank too much with this woman, true, and I was an idiot because I misread her, true. But in my experience, if somebody says they've been threatened with an acid attack, for them to go back to the source of that hatred, I find that that's outside my experience. Of, of, of humanity and, and I misread it and I've been a reporter for 40 years. This woman was a bit like Nancy and Oliver Twist and that she knew that Bill Sykes was a bad man but she was still a bit in love with him and that's uh, what floored me but the worst thing was the, the failure of BBC management, not my friends, not, my, not the people who have always been in the trenches with me but the failure of BBC management to stick by me at this difficult moment. And they left me pretty much injured um, in the middle uh, of no man's land. And I was abused by uh, Tommy Robertson supporters without being able to say, and we've done a film and this is what's in the film because they kept on not putting the film out. And eventually I started to crack up. Um, and eventually I went to see a psychiatrist and um, because the BBC were trying to sack me and the psychiatrist said, before we start, John, I really loved your film about the Church of Scientology. <laughs> <laughs> and the BBC hired a professor of, uh, of psychiatry 
to check out my psychiatrist who said essentially that I was suffering from work-related stress. My psychiatrist said, that, have you ever suffered any PTSD? And I, you know, I've been shelled, shot at, friends of mine have been killed. And I said in the wars and I, and I started and I'd only got to 1992 Yugoslavia, the death of my friend Paul Jenks in Osijek, January 1992, God bless him. And the psychiatrist said, listen, stop, I've got to ask you some questions. <laughs> because I'd, I was just, like, it was like a fire hose. Anyway, the, the second psychiatrist, I got him, before we start, I really liked your film about Scientology. What do you want me to write? <laughs> so, so don't knock psychiatrists. Um, but also, um, that was, so, so that experience was worse than Scientology because the BBC then in 2007 under Director General Mark Thompson put out the film. Imagine my distress, how awful it would have been if the BBC had not put out that film. But, but also, but with this Tommy Robinson episode, there are a couple of strands that are really worrying. Firstly, this is someone with a, with a history of a particular type of behaviour and whose supporters, it's not inconceivable that people would come and find you and, and attack you. This feels very close to home, whereas Scientology feels yes. a, a kind of a distant land. This is the far right in England. We know that they get up to stuff. Secondly, for all the courage you show as a, an investigative and, and broadcast journalist, you are only able to really have that courage and it be relevant if the institutions that employ you and commission you have the guts to stand behind you properly. And what's petrifying about this is something as big and as strong as the BBC and all it embodies and should couldn't, or, you know, your opinion or whatever, didn't seem to be in this story prepared to stand up to the far right in the UK. No, and, and that's the terrible thing is that our film should have been shown and it should have been shown with balls and swagger. We should have taken the piss out of it. But, but basically there was nobody around um, who, who, who would, and, and I was a bit broken by the experience, but I could have been put back together. I would, um, but we could have done it and we could have taken the piss and it could have been great telly and it didn't happen. And it didn't happen because because Tony Hall was not a good director general. Um, he's left now, good. The new guy, by the way, I like, um, Tim Davey. He actually, one of my other films got canceled by George Entwistle, um, then Entwistle was fired. Tim Davey took over as a acting, a temporary director general for a bit, and he ran the film about the Barclay twins, the one of which I was accused of urinating over a baby. You know, like, 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 so, Anyway, so I'm not, uh, I believe in the BBC, I pay the licence fee, it's a good thing. But this was a very, very depressing episode because um, we let Tommy Robinson get away with something which was dark and nasty. Uh, and the reason um, that happened, I think, is that because Tony Hall um, and BBC management have been bullied by um, this, um, well, a series of Conservative governments into a position, a posture of, cat, of timidity and fear of criticism. So that they've lost the big picture is that Tommy Robinson is a very nasty piece of work. He's clearly trying to bully and intimidate them. But I found myself in an awful position having made a mistake, but it wasn't a terrible mistake. And because of Scientology and my previous, the British public, I think would have forgiven me it. And I would have said, listen, I'm sorry, I fucked up here. I made a mistake. But never mind. 
this guy is a really nasty piece of work. But the problem is they didn't put the program out in a timely fashion and they left me hanging to dry. Um, the nice thing for me um, is that I knocked on the door of LBC. Um, and um, Why LBC, by the way? Well, because it's just down the road. and It's, <laughs> it's the nearest it's, place. It's, yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> if you lived near Sky, you'd have gone there. It's the, uh, no, yeah, it's far too away, uh, too far away. Um, but it, it's kind of the last resort of sort of slightly broken uh, BBC or Fleet Street reporters. Um, uh, yeah, you know, I went to the Frank Boff wing. No, that's a joke. Anyway, uh, I said, listen, I, I'd like to do a podcast. And and I met the lovely guy, uh, Chris Baum, as the head of podcasts. And, and then there's a huge delay, partly because of the election. Everybody's busy with the election. Then there's the virus. And finally, I signed the contract to do Hunting Jelen on July the 1st last year. And on July the 2nd, and it's about finding her. July the 2nd, she found. And I found up Chris and I said, I've signed the contract. And he said, I know, it's okay. It's still fascinating. And there's a moment um, when uh, you, we know it's going to be good because everybody we're working with said they're really interested and fascinating. And all the calls with the, um, my lovely producers who are ex-BBC at Chalk and Blade and Chris, they're really fascinating. And we, we talk for hours about stuff and it all works. And then um, I can remember I do a trailer um, it's a week before it goes out and the trailer hits it hits number one on the UK Apple podcast chart on the trailer alone and I text my son Sam who's you know my family and everything stuck with me for all the awful Tommy Robinson stuff and I said Sam it's number one and he texts me back of course it is of course it is and since then there's a, a TV a film company has optioned this it the series Hunting Jelen is a TV series for maybe Netflix or one of the streamers. And, um, and a publishing company has commissioned me to write a book about it. Um, and I'm going to do some more podcasts. Um, so when the BBC found, essentially, the, man the management made a judgment that I wasn't a good storyteller anymore. I've proved them wrong. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's a wider context to this, isn't there? In the context of Trump and uh, 
things like Cambridge Analytica and this fear about the truth and getting to the truth, but also about the pressure on media organisations, public institutions, governments, that these things, the vital checks and balances, not just in holding regimes to account, but just in filtering the truth and ensuring that the truth gets out. The fear that so many citizens have is that actually our systems are very weak, that someone like Trump can become president, that something like Cambridge Analytica can happen, and that organisations, institutions like the BBC, are too scared to, to run a documentary about Tommy Robinson, and, and, and that there's a, a level of public anxiety that all this is happening at the same time. I mean, am I being too dramatic to lump all those things together? No. I want to write a... Um... I want to write a thriller, a novel set, um, I'm giving it a game away here, but I'm going to do it, but set in the 1930s about the BBC and a reporter trying to tell the story of Hitler's rise to power. Because now I, I, I so, um, Reasons to be Cheerful uh, is a wonderful song. Um, and, and I actually, the moment this is over, I shall listen to it again, because I love Ian Jury. Um, and there are, there are reasons to be cheerful. You're right. And I can remember um, when I heard that Flynn, who'd been to Moscow, who had basically licked um, Vladimir Putin's boots uh, at the Kremlin, had become the national security advisor. I couldn't sleep that night. I mean, 2016 was an awful year. Trump, Brexit, then Trump. Um, now, what's happened is the good people of the United States of America found their marbles again. Thank God for that. Enough and, of them did. Yeah, enough of them did. Not, you know, it was, I actually, um, anyway, uh, my unborn granddaughter, uh, Shyla, uh, could see uh, she's no fool. And in March, she bet 500 quid on Joe Biden to beat Trump. Nigel Farage bet ten thousand pounds on uh, on, <laughs> on Trump to beat Joe, and uh, I've got less money, but I'm not thick. Oh, anyway, actually, I'm sorry. This is the unborn granddaughter did that, and then just the other day, John Ossoff, who I know, I've been, he was working as a film producer, an investigative film producer, with my mate Ron McCullough in London. We went on the drink. We both said, "You've got to run. You've got to run." In Georgia, he was agonizing about it, and uh, uh, he would have done anyway, but he took our advice over several beers, and um, and uh, the unborn granddaughter bet five hundred quid on um, on, um, on, <laughs> on on John Ossoff to win in Georgia, which was a really close one, and so thus far, uh, and by the way, my granddaughter was born yesterday, baby Shyla, everything is good. Congratulations. And, um, she, um, well, I did nothing, but anyway, <laughs> she's, she's 1300. Well, you did quid. something many years ago that kind of led <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> um, but, but, so, anyway, she's 1300 quid up on, on defeating the rights, and the uh, and she's she's only one day old, so that's okay. <laughs> now, where are we left? Where I so I feel that 2016 was a terrifying year, and in part, what happened was like the rise of the Nazis um, in 33, and this sounds silly, but it isn't. It was a reaction to the Great Depression and the, the economic 
catastrophe which was worse in Germany than anywhere else for a series of awful reasons. And as a result, we got Hitler. This time round, weirdly, the Germans have been the boring, sensible, decent people, and the Anglo-Saxons have lost their marbles. And we did Brexit, which is a less bad thing, I think, than Trump, but it's not good. Um, and because it's essentially nationalism over common sense and over common decency, and I don't agree with it. And that's causing a series of monsters um, that are flowing from it. And Trump was worse because he was essentially Vladimir Putin's bitch. He never once criticized Vladimir Putin. And Russian power and money is being used to shore up the right and the far right across the world uh, in Britain, in Europe, and in the United States. So what's great, the reasons to be cheerful. I have a, a granddaughter, fantastic. She's winning every fucking bet she makes. Um, she, yeah, um, Trump's gone and Brexit is looking like a foolish mistake that many, many of us thought it was. So it feels like the structures that the good people, my parents' generation built after 1945 to stop the world from going down into the true hellhole of Nazism, those structures worked just. So in America, by, you know, like, and it's, the votes are slim, but in America, they've seen goodbye to Trump, who, not when he was in power, but after power, what he was saying was pretty, pretty close to neo-fascism. There'll be Brexiteers um, that listen to this that go, oh, you can't lump us in with him. You know, I, I voted for Brexit out of sovereignty and I like Europe and I travel there. And, you know, it's unfair to, to lump those things together. I agree with them um, that it's unfair, but it feels like it's the same kind of flow. But I don't want to. I have uh, my agent is a Brexiteer. One of my some of my best friends are Brexiteers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a dodgy, uh, my dodgy friend, uh, Tony Donnelly. Uh, he's listening to this. He won't be. Anyway, Tony, uh, Tony um, was a conservative um, um, big guy in Essex, and he didn't like Eric Pickles, who was the local MP. And after 97, uh, he tried to challenge him and his mate tried to get rid of the pickles from the seat in Brentwood and Eric Pickles basically um, got close to a bishop who of the Penile church which some people said I will say is an evangelical cult they will go and blah 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 and it was a nasty thing and they all joined the conservative party more than 100 members of the church of Penile joined the conservative association and Eric Pickles was safe. Tony was kicked out of the Conservative Party twice. And, and then I did a, um, and then I did a film about, uh, the film we did before Scientology, um, we did about the Kabbalah cult, which was this crazy thing Madonna was in where you wore a red string. And it was kind of like a version of Jewish Scientology, it was nasty. Anyway, uh, Tony was recovering from bladder cancer and you could buy Kabbalah water for 20 quid, which was a complete con. But we um, sort of thing that Del Boy would have sold in Only Fools and Horses. Yeah, yeah. But Tony's a bit of the Del Boy. But anyway, he goes in wearing a wire and he films all this nonsense. So he's a great undercover reporter. And Tony and I become great friends. Oh, at some point, uh, I think the producer of this is uh, a great friend of mine, very left wing, and is annoyed 
by Tony's right-wingness. And then Tony tells the story, he's on his yacht, it's foggy, he's off Gibraltar, and he can hear somebody screaming, and um, he puts down his gin and tonic, gets into his dinghy, drives off, finds this poor African bloke who's on a buoy, and the people smugglers have dumped him on the buoy. And oh, the my poor God. Guys are kind of and Tony picks him up, warms him up, gives him a drink, drives him on the on the dinghy to Spain, <laughs> or Gibraltar doesn't know, shakes his hand and says, good luck, mate. And then Tony says, and you're calling me a fucking racist. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I guess it's that Brexit isn't the same, but to me it feels it feels it comes from the same thing, which is driven in part by people's frustration that too many posh, successful liberals just ignored their real world problems and complaints and grievances, real grievances about the new, the way the world was panning out. Then everything uh, goes to hell in a handcart with the bankers recession. And that these unlistened to voices get louder and louder. So there's a distinct, I also feel this about some of the people, I mean, like Tommy Robinson got something like 2% of the vote, 2% across 60 million people is, it's a lot of people. Um, and therefore you've got to, um, you've kind of, you've got to listen to these people, not their leaders, who I think have taken us down a blind alley, not their champions, but the people they're championing. We've got to listen to them harder. A problem I had with the BBC was there are too many posh people. The reason I took the piss out of you a bit <laughs> like the opposite. Crap because, accent at the start of the interview. Yeah, because your real accent uh, is is not posh. And and I'm annoyed because there are too many posh twits in the media, um, in governments, in, in everywhere that um and 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 I and I and I understand people get pissed off with that, and I get it, and I am too. Um, hey, but um, but I feel that reasons to be cheerful that um, we've gone closer to this stuff, but the world's better. So you know, yesterday Joe Biden phones up Vladimir Putin and says, you know, I want to, I'm concerned about what happened to Alexei Navalny something Trump would never dare do. That's good. That's good. Well, you mentioned Navalny, because when you said that since that Scientology documentary, the thing that actually had unsettled you the most, although I knew parts of that EDL story, I thought you were going to say Russia, particularly post Skripal, where they're prepared, and of course, uh, Litvinenko, where, where they're prepared to kill and attempt to kill people on British soil. That as someone who was spent a lot of time exposing Vladimir Putin, who's come face to face with him, that actually Russia would be the thing you feared the most. I mean, have you ever thought they could bump me off? Or do, you, do you think they've ever tried? Uh, me, no, my neighbours, yes. After I uh, doorstep Putin, my neighbours said, John, we're not accepting your Amazon parcels anymore, OK? <laughs> <laughs> my accountant, uh, at some point, I wanted my, I've got a company and my registered address of the company is my accountant's. Um, and um, Stephen Lerner, and uh, he said, all right, I've changed, you know, so the registered address of your company is my accountant's address. And, he, and Steve said, who do I expect first, the Russians or Tommy Robinson? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, 
So I think that um, uh, Litvinenko um, was former um, FSB, if I'm right. Um, Skripal was former GRU, um, uh, Russian military intelligence. And those are, and I, I, um, I think the evidence against Vladimir Putin is damning that, that you know, you cannot buy um, polonium in a shop, nor can you buy um, Novichok. Novichok in your local Waitrose or Aldi. Um, um, you just can't. These are state produced things, and therefore the only way they could have ended up inside Litvinenko and inside Skripal is because Vladimir Putin ordered that to be so. No question in my mind, the evidence against him is damning. And a lot flows from that. However, I'm a British reporter who I get followed. Uh, you know, last time I was in Moscow, um, there's a little clip of it on my Twitter thing. By the way, my Twitter is at uh, John Sweeney Raw, as in R O A R. Anyway, uh, there's a little. And why the Raw? Is that because of that Scientology clip? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Scientology. It was like they were trying to. <laughs> what they were trying to do was embarrass me about um, about shouting at Scientology. I apologise. I apologise then. I apologize now, but um, I'm sorry I lost my temper. I think keeping civil is part of the um, the engine oil of, 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 of good democratic discourse. So I don't think people should go around losing their temper, but my defense is I've had enough. Okay. Um, <laughs> enough. But anyway, um, the uh, at John Sweeney Raw, but my pin tweet is this film I did, which I'm very proud of. It's called Taking on Putin, and in it, I ask Alexei Navalny, is Russia a police state? And he says, absolutely, 100%. And it is. And I think one of the awful things about Trump and possibly Brexit is that it's clear um, that Russia, the Russian secret state, helped assist Trump to power. Whether that assistance was critical, I don't know. It's hard to tell but they certainly helped Trump over Hillary. Um, is it possible that the Russian secret state helped um, the Brexiteers uh, win the referendum? I think it is very possible, but the evidence is still murky, in part because our government hasn't looked at it properly. But, when, uh, but I'd point everybody to, to read the Russia report by the House of Commons Intelligence Committee, which is damning and scary. And, and frightening. I'm trying at the moment lockdown's over. I'm gonna, um, I want to make a film for Byline TV called The Perugia Candidate, which is about Boris's relationship in particular with the Lebedevs, Alexander and Yevgeny, who are Russian oligarchs, um, who, and all, you know, and the point is that they're anti-Kremlin Russian oligarchs, I think. There is no such thing as an anti-Kremlin Russian oligarch. And, and the question is, um, Boris is big friends with Yevgeny. Yevgeny has been made a lord, and Yevgeny has made absolute silence about uh, the poisoning of Navalny and now his arrest, now that he's gone back to Russia. So um, here we have a British lawmaker. He's called Baron Siberia. There's a clue, folks, right there. Baron Siberia, Lord Yevgeny Lebedev. What do you think about Vladimir Putin? locking up this man um 
on what are clearly fake charges. Now, let's remember, everybody should see this fantastic video the ban is done about Putin's palace. And the critical thing about it is that Putin has said it's nothing to do with me, folks, but you can't go anywhere near it because the, um, the Russian um, secret police, the Russian presidential security service will stop you going anywhere near that. Well, why is that then? If it was owned by the Butlin organization, <laughs> you suddenly maybe um, be meeting sinister people from the secret police, would you? Why has no major... Um, I don't know. Some of those lifeguards can be pretty st- pretty strict at both. <laughs> well, the um, red coats. It's, yeah, if that's not um, a secret police, I don't know what is. I don't know. Matt, I haven't looked at you. I mean, you were. You must have been a red You're too young to be a red coat, aren't you? That's the thing. You know what? You I was accepted. I auditioned to be one. Oh, really? Oh, that's funny. That's funny. Got Lynn's in Skegness and then changed my mind. Yeah, yeah. Skeggy... Uh, yeah, I've been a skeggy. I used to work, I was a, uh, I got a job on the Sheffield Telegraph. Um, it's my first, and I loved it, four years in Sheffield. The sense of humour of the people of South Yorkshire is so bleak. <laughs> it, like, it's just incredibly funny and lovely and beautiful, but um, so dark. Anyway, I got into trouble and they wanted to get rid of me and the boss didn't like me and I was too cocky and arrogant. I'm an arrogant prick. Um, and then there's this moment, anyway, I, um, I bugger off to India um, where I've got a friend, I get terrible diarrhea. I go to the hills because I'm out there for three weeks. I go to the mountains, turn the corner, and I bump into the home of the exiled Dalai Lama. And I interview him. And uh, uh, for the, I tell lots of lies about Chef Telegraph. It's got big circulation. It hasn't really. And I've got a silly uh, Robin Day um, bow tie, red and white spotted. So I look good. And the Dalai Lama, I'm very stiff and very awkward um, in my first questions because I'm scared, don't know what the fuck I'm doing. And the Dalai Lama says, why are you wearing a bow tie but no socks? <laughs> yeah, because I'd, I'd run out of money and my, all my socks had disintegrated. So I looked a complete dickhead. Anyway, it was really fun. And he's, the Dalai Lama's a wonderful man. And I'm a massive fan of free Tibet. And um, um, it, he's got a great laugh like... Um, uh, Barbara Windsor, when she uh, likes, sorry, like Sid James, when Barbara Windsor sort of pops her bra, wah, 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 that kind of laugh is the Dalai Lama, fantastic guy. And then what was weird was I, I got home and I told my mum, and my mum said, oh, my, her mum, my grandma, Grandma Owen, loved uh, reading stories. When my mum was a little girl, she loved reading stories about Tibet and the Dalai Lama back then. And I'd met the guy, you know, what a wonderful. Incredible thing anyway um uh, back in um on the sheffield telegraph eric Barr, the news editor puts the phone down this is long before mobile phones right? this world existed i lived in it 1981 to something like this there's been a murder in barnsley where's the fucking tibet correspondent <laughs> <laughs> so i had a kind of i have throughout my life i have always been in scrapes and I've always, always, always had trouble. And then weirdly, just as the plane is about to crash, suddenly there's some unexpected burst of fuel and poof, I'm off again. And it's happened again and again and again. I'm hoping uh, very much that um, despite all the many, many problems we've got, that, that um, 
that we've had a very close shave, but I think we can get better. Weirdly, I think the virus has, um, has helped us understand that society matters, that caring for people matters and is important, that the idea, this lie that making money is the only good thing in life, fuck that, that's wrong. Um, yesterday, um, I haven't heard the full story, but um, just at the very end of the birth, um, baby Shiloh apparently uh, wasn't um, breathing. This has happened to my son when the same thing. And um, his Mrs. Kongdan um, um, fainted. And suddenly somebody hits a button and then the crash team appears, like whatever, you know, the sixth cavalry, all the doctors and nurses, and then bang, everything's lovely very, very quickly. Baby is fine. Mum is fine. Everything is good. These people are running to help say, I'm, I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure um, it wasn't a big thing. Actually, it happened when my son was born. But these doctors and nurses are running into that room to help somebody who they don't know. They may have the virus, but they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart. And that, to me, is what is really fucking amazing and wonderful about us, our country, our city, my city, London, um, but also about common humanity. And I think Trump in particular was bad news for common humanity. He's gone. And I'm, I'm a bit optimistic. I'm loathe to, to offer point of that optimism. Keep asking you about Vladimir Putin. But when you look him in the eye, firstly, he's definitely had work done on his face. He's definitely yes, had yes, yes, Botox yes, yes. or filler or something. His face looks ludicrous now. Had he had work done when you were face to face with him? Yes, 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 yes. I've written a novel about it um, called Cold, um, which you can get on Amazon. And it's got, I mean, the, the, the Elephant Moon is the big one that sold something like 200,000. This one, Cold, I don't, it's got 1,800 reviews on Amazon or clicks wow. or whatever. So that, um, sorry th thing, so it's good. Um, Anyway, he has had Botox. The story is that um, the Botox starts um, with Gaddafi. And Gaddafi um, gets Botox done and Gaddafi likes Bunga Bunga. He becomes big friends with Silvia Berlusconi, who's the Italian. Italian politics is always interesting because you always see the future happen in the past in Italian politics. So they had Mussolini before Hitler. They had Berlusconi before Trump. Anyway, uh, Gaddafi and Berlusconi are big pals, and Berlusconi gets Botox, and Berlusconi um, um, gets into Bunga Bunga. And then Berlusconi and Putin become pals, and Putin does Bunga Bunga, and he does Botox. And Bunga Bunga, it, it, does that mean something specific, or is that just rumpy pumpy? Is that just. No, it's not. It is where you have rumpy pumpy, but you have like 80 young women and five men it's like a sort of mass orgy but but it, it's 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 a pre-orgy but the point is the odds are massively in favor of the rich and dirty and disgusting old men right so well it's like um, a party or is it an actual it, it is happens? a party it's a party i think i've never been to a bunga no bunga. to make it clear yes i'm, I'm not insinuating <laughs> that you have, have uh, but um but um it's that kind of but thing if you had to go undercover at one john you would selflessly I'm a bit crap at undercover. My dog's barking. Shush. 
I'm a bit crap at undercover these days because I'm quite well known, apart from in North Korea, where I managed to pass off as an academic with an alcohol problem. But that's another story. Anyway, <laughs> back to so back to Bunga Bunga. I, so, so 2014, um, a Russian missile launcher um, was crossed the border with the Russian government. Uh, I believe the evidence is damning with the official um, permission, or rather with the unofficial and secret approval, but effective permission of the Kremlin, so that the Ukrainian rebels, the anti-Ukrainian pro-Russian rebels, stilled up and driven by the Kremlin, um, uh, have got a missile launch to shoot down uh, Ukrainian military jets who are hurting the rebels. And then what happens is that um, they, they've left the big radar on the other side, the Russian side of the river, because it's too heavy and it might sink the, um, uh, the pontoon bridge over which it crosses secretly. And the problem with that is they can't see what they're firing at. And what they think they're firing at is Ukrainian military jet. It's not, it's a Boeing MH17 and 298 people die. And so after that happens, that happens on the day that the BBC in 2014 announced my redundancy from Panorama. This is five years before they finally get rid of me, but they announce all London-based reporters for Panorama being made redundant. There are four of us and I'm the best known. So I'm out. Um, and, but it's just, and the, the plan is for Fiona Bruce to do Panoramas and you, we don't need people like me, but she can't, go to the MH17 crash site because she's doing Antiques Roadshow from Devices. And so I said, even though my, uh, uh, humiliatingly, my departure from BBC Panorama has been announced everywhere, and it's front page of UK Press Gazette, I, um, I said, well, well, I'll go. And so lo and behold, I sort of turn up at the crash site and all my mates from the other TV stations from around the world saying, but you've been fired. Yeah, we're not quite far off. Anyway, so there I am. But boy, Matt, is it grim. It's a, it's a cornfield in the middle of nowhere. Um, poppy field. Um, and sunflowers as well. And there are seats and the tail. And then you turn the corner and then there's the engines and the plane. And then there's the luggage and the thing that still makes me cry when I see it at Stansted or Gatwick or Heathrow is those little toddler suitcases you pull a toddler along. Oh, man. And, and, um, and when I see that happen, it gives me a flashback to that. Anyway, um, my very clever producer, Nick Sturdy, um, and I, Nick's works out that Putin is opening a mammoth museum in Yakutsk nine time zones east of London, further east than Beijing, far eastern Siberia. He's opening a mammoth museum, and Nick, who knows Russia brilliantly and beautifully. When you say mammoth says, museum, do you mean a really big museum or a museum about the woolly mammoth? A museum about the woolly mammoth, a small museum dedicated to the woolly mammoth. <laughs> A small mammoth. And um, he's opening a, uh, a museum. Uh, thank you for your interruption. And uh, the, uh, he, you can't doorstep in Moscow or St. Petersburg because there are too many goons. But in the sticks, sometimes they, they, they lose their 
um, enormous control. So it's my um, niece Laura's wedding to a bloke Tim. Um, and then he's opening anyway. I and it's one of these stupid weddings somewhere, and um, it was a lovely wedding, it was beautiful. But uh, you finish drinking at midnight, and then you're in a bus and you go from one place to another. You know, you, 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 you it, it's all super complicated, but effectively, I had one and a half sleep, and then I had to get up, and then I had to drive all the way, um, or uh, a taxi to Gatwick, fly to Moscow, change airports, fly six more time zones your cuts get out there i'm starving and i'm very 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 hungover from this bloody wedding in my wedding togs i look respectable and i and i said to nick god i'm starving and um i hit a kebab and it's bad and and i'm feeling nauseous and then nick suddenly and there's a lot of jabber jabber with the kremlin security people it transpires that what they're telling Nick is in Russian, you can stand there, but you're not allowed to ask any questions, not a word. And Nick somehow forgets to tell me this. I don't know why. Uh, by the way, I did Russian uh, O-level at school, but I've forgotten it all. Yeah, gloopy gnom, which means I'm a stupid dwarf, but never mind. Um, that's not important right now. So look, I'm in a row of professors of mammothology, but I'm the one, and I've got this kind of absurd overconfidence because of my elocution and drama training from the age of 10 <laughs> of also riding the nausea of a dodgy kebab and like nine bottles of vodka from the wedding and anyway um Putin turns up and everybody else freezes with fear and I uh reach forward and say what about the killings in Ukraine um Mr President what about the deaths not just of the Ukrainians and Russians but also British Australian, Dutch, MH17. And all of the Kremlin TV cameras switch on because this must have been agreed, because you're not allowed to ask these kind of questions. And as it was all the whole thing switch on, Putin stops and starts answering the question while Peskov, by the way, Peskov's his PR man, he looks like a former manager of Rotherham Town in 1981. Total total ghastly you know third division football manager chewing gum on the touchline bawling <sighs> at refs <sighs> such a terrible man um they say i'm a liar a thug a bully i've forgotten what the russian state says about me lately um it's anyway the you get the drift um but um he's really angry and he's translating now putin can speak um, um english he's not bad at all he pretends not to, so Peskov's got to translate, but Peskov's so angry with us because we've, we've done the doorstep that he forgets his English. And then Putin sort of translates, small towns, small towns, like he's translating for the translator. And afterwards, um, uh, Peskov, um, Putin, anyway, in the face, so I'm looking at Putin and Putin's face is plastic because of the Botox and it hasn't worked, the gossip is, that an Italian professor of cosmetic medicine had to come in and, and, and repair it. But it looks weird because his skin is really plasticky. And it reminds me of the nesting consciousness, which as you will know, Matt, is a Doctor Who baddie that turns people into plastic then gobbles them up in plastic really bit. And, and, I'm, um, and I'm thinking, you know, fuck me, he's a fucking Doctor Who baddie. He's an auton. 
And then I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm going to throw up over this cum. And, and I can, and I've got this, this, this kebab is kind of like, you know, it's, it's, it's making its presence felt. Oh, of all the phrases I wasn't expecting to hear about your interview, Vladimir Putin. I think I, it's, you know, and he's staring at me, he's staring at me like um, ferocious, but he's a little man and I'm bigger than him and I'm staring back at him. And I think if I lose this blinking game, I'm going to throw up. Now, I know the, Ukraine, the Ukrainian Ukrainians will love it, you know, the reporter who threw up over Vladimir Putin. But I just don't want to project our vomit over the president of Russia. Um, nine times away from London. The BBC powerful, but not that powerful. Anyway, I hold his gaze and he looks away from me. This is on YouTube. You can watch it. Um, he looks away from me. He blinks first and I don't throw up over him. Deal. And... Um, Anyway, uh, afterwards, I ask him one more question: Why there are so many Russian um, um, uh, graves? You know, people killed in Ukraine. I.e., these are Russian soldiers who've been buried back home. What's happening? But wall of Kremlin muscle. He goes away. Peskov says, "Come with um, this gentleman," and he takes us down into a basement. And we're into a basement. We go a long corridor, and we're put in the room. In the room, there is coffee and croissant. Um, so things have improved since Stalin's day. There's a click, the door locks, and we can't get out. And there's a big man on the other side of the door. The, the glass is opaque, frosty. So we can't move and we can't talk to the BBC. Uh, what I don't know is that it's gone up on, um, on Russia today because they just ran it live. So it's up. So, um, so it's okay. But I'm the world can't talk to me and I can't talk to the world. Later, um, how long are you I kept in that room for? Um, now and a half until Putin had long left. Then there was another thing. He was opening a pipeline uh, uh, and I went along to that in the Yukuts, um region. And as I was getting close to the moment where the, uh, Putin was um, snipping open a pipeline with the Chinese deputy premier, whatever, a, a Russian security guy came and, and, and gave me a punch in the, in the gut. It wasn't um, like not crippling or anything, but, and that's just, I mean, I, I wasn't, I was a hundred yards away from him, um, but it was, you know, and then, and this is an MLA, nobody, nobody would have seen it. There was no thing, but it was, don't, don't do that again, Mrs. Sweeney. So the purpose of putting you in that underground room was just to keep you out of the way until he left and got far yeah. away, or was yeah. there and any other person uh, to intimidate yeah. a little bit as well? Yeah, yeah, and and a bit of intimidation and and fuck you. Um, Did you drink the other... coffee or eat the croissants? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, they're not going to poison me. Um, Why do you think they're not? How can you be so because, sure? Well, I mean, well, also I'm hungry and and I'm a bit of a pig. Um, so we, uh, <laughs> so like, you know, uh, it'd be all right. Uh, and it was, you know, uh, here I am. Better than the uh, kebab by the sounds of things. <laughs> yeah, better, much better than the kebab. Uh, I, wouldn't, I really wouldn't go whatever the, the uh, whatever. Uh, <laughs> the, Yuri, Kebabra or whatever it was called. <laughs> Yuri's kebab shop in, in, uh, in uh, wherever it was, your cuts. Just don't go there, mate. Don't go there. That's my advice. Um, but also, um, I mean, the other thing was BBC Russia didn't like me doing this. Um, they don't like current affairs, and it was a problem. And they, 
uh, later um, they um, they were trying to fire me again and actually um, what I did was I put in a subject access request and you can do this asking for all me and so I nominated 18 bosses at the BBC uh, and uh, and got subject access on all of their emails um, just for fun because that's what I'm like and um, I didn't do anything with it but I just I, I but uh, some of them were snotty about you know, what's Sweeney going to do you know please 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 can we you know Sweeney's not going to endorse that Putin again so uh, anyway the guy who clobbered me could have been from BBC Moscow uh, office but um they weren't good um, in 2018 when I did Peskov. They weren't good. Uh, it's another story, but um, but um, hey, uh, but um, I've left the BBC. I still, as I said, I still pay the license fee. I have many, many, many good friends who work there, who who are lovely and good, and will send me um, lots of congratulations about the hunting Chilean thing. Um, so. So I I feel, you know, I'd like to say, I'd like to thank Tommy Robinson and Tony Hall for ruining my career at the BBC so I can make a, a number one hit podcast and a TV show and a book on the back of it. And I'd like them to thank them. <laughs> that, um, the latest development with regards to Putin is, is the incarceration of uh, Alexei Navalny and the protests that we've seen across Russia in the last few days, about 150,000 people on the streets in various cities across Russia. All this is, is part of a wider question. Navalny's part of it is, what will it take to remove Putin from power and how secure is his position? Um, somebody, I mean, I, you're, listen, you're talking, talking to a man who in 2001 predicted the fall of Robert Mugabe. Now, it, it did happen but like 17, 18 years later. So, um, and somebody said about Mugabe, but it holds true. I think the person who wrote this was R.W. Johnson, who wrote a wonderful book in the 70s called How Long Will South Africa Survive? Tyrannies do not crumble, they shear. So when a tyranny goes, it goes very suddenly, almost as if there's no reason for it. But if you, I don't know if I, I love the Jurassic Coast, and if you've studied the geology there, I, I once did a piece of the Observer um, where this lovely geology professor said, okay, so look at these rocks. Now imagine a pile of books, but then put the National Geographic down the bottom. And it instantly it makes the, all the books on top really, all the rocks on top really unstable because you've got a slippery National Geographic. And Putin's power is both enormously stable and also at the same time inherently unstable because it isn't rooted in something like civil society and democracy and the knitting, the wonderfully powerful knitting you can have if you have a stable democracy like we have, which can change and you have the peaceful change of power, which by and large just happened in the United States despite Trump's worst efforts. So Putin could have Navalny killed at any moment. Navalny knows that, but he's incredibly brave. And there's something slightly weird about Navalny in that he's doing that, but I understand why. And, and he's been doing it for a long, long time. And if you know Russia, you know that if you challenge the Kremlin, you may die. So um, I met um, 
three people who were openly critical of Vladimir Putin um, to me and to everyone else. And they were Anna Politivskaya, Natasha Estimarova, and Boris Nemtsov, two journalists and a politician, all three were shot dead. No one knows who ordered those killings. Um, they were very, very critical of Putin, they're dead. So, and Navalny knows this. So that Navalny knows, but by the way, Navalny could be in safety in Germany and still be killed. Um, they almost killed him with a Novichok. It's fascinating that Putin used that, but he does deserve to be called Vlad the Poisoner, in my view. He is the poison toad. His problem is he's been in power now for 20 years, and there was a little kind of game where um, his, uh, the man, um, um, uh, what's the name of the, his prime minister for a time? Um, oh, Medvedev? Medvedev, yeah, it's the bear in Russian. Uh, Medvedev um, um, switched hats. But there's a friend of mine, um, a professor of Russian emeritus at uh, Queen Mary's College, um, London, um, Donald Rayfield, who's written a wonderful book called Stalin and His Hangmen um, about Stalin's secret police heads. Um, fascinating uh, dark dark book but he describes um, Medvedev as Al Capone's lawyer anyway um, the this game didn't convince anyone so for 21 years now Putin has been in power and there are 20 year olds who have the votes who've known no one else but Putin what's happening is that the environment now in 2021 let's assume that the virus goes away um, fingers crossed, is way more toxic for Putin than it's ever been in his entire 20 years. Number one, the shift away from oil and gas is moving apace. I feel that I'm, I'm um, very green without supporting the political party, um, but I am very green. I feel it very, very strongly. We've got to do something about it. Secondly, um, What's been exciting about the lockdown has been the rise of cycling, the rise of electric um, scooters, all of that stuff. It's beautiful and sweet. So there's something unfashionable about oil and gas, and we don't need it if we can work cleverly with other technologies. And it's great when I read that Britain, which, you know, I used to go, to, I, when I was on the Sheffield Telegraph, I went down a, a working coal mine. They, they don't exist. The government is allowing one more. It seems foolish to me. But um, um, wind and solar are working and we need to improve them. Anyway, we don't need Russian oil and gas, number one. America doesn't need it in particular. Number two, um, they haven't, all of the oil and gas money has been stolen by the oligarchs and shipped abroad. Roman Abramovich denies everything or deny any concern, but he's spent more money on Chelsea than he has on building businesses that work properly that are doing something other than that. So that's a curse of the Russian economy. All the smart and good people in Russia want to leave. So that there are a number of things which are all bad. And now Trump, who was his bitch, has gone. And Joe Biden doesn't like what he did in terms of Putin, what Putin did in terms of interfering with Russian democracy. So um, is no friend of the Kremlin. So I feel that returning to this, you know, you've got a pile of books, but you've got the National Geographic underneath. 
the odds are against Navalny, but my money is not on the poison toad. My money is on the uh, on the challenger. My money is on Navalny. What to win in a free and fair election, or to overthrow him some other way? Well, he was kept off the ballot last time. He's kept off. It, There won't be a free and fair election while Putin, Putin is in charge. So that's not going to happen. But there could be street protests. Where it becomes interesting is if the oligarchs realize that for them, their lives will be less secure if they keep on backing Putin. What we can do, by the way, you know, yes, of course. Abramovich and co make their money in Siberia, but they don't live there. You don't, you can't have a nice yacht. You know, you don't park your fancy yacht in Lake fucking Baikal. You want it in San Tropez. You don't want your kids to go to the Yakut school of Kababology. You want your kids to go to Eton, Winchester. Um, you want your money safe as houses in the city of London. You don't want it in Russia because Putin's goons can take it from you if you do the wrong thing. Now, we can do much more about this. We can do much more on this. Uh, and that's exactly what Navalny has asked us to do, and we should do it. The, um, the Magnitsky so, Act is, is part of that? Magnitsky Act. Um, um, better refine sanctions against the major oligarchs that Navalny has asked. Um, less Russian money in the city of L London. Um, let it be clean and you know let's let's police this let's say hello if you're a Russian oligarch you can't have your yacht um, in the south of France you can't have your money in the city of London your kids can't go to school um, at Eton or Winchester because you're on a list you know you're prescribed you and your family and we're specific and we're tough about that and, and remember Putin's armory includes shooting people, torturing people, blackmailing people, poisoning people. If our counter weapons are not strong and clear enough, then that lot's going to win. But we, we can do much, much better. I'm not suggesting we're going to, we should um, use violence, but I am suggesting that we should, uh, I'm following the value in this, but we should use proper targeted sanctions against the oligarchs and their money and their families and their family members. Um, and that's a, that's a big tough message, which it doesn't feel like this current government is going to do, but it's going to become more and more difficult. But I've got no doubt that Biden's going to go for it. I mean, you know, I feel it, I feel it, I feel it. One of the other elements of this in this country has been the preparedness of certain elements of the political class to defend or to give a certain sheen, a level of respectability. Alex Salmond has a show on RT. Jeremy Corbyn had been on Press TV, which was funded by the Iranians, but he got up in Parliament after the Skripal poisoning and asked questions which frankly could have been drafted by the Kremlin about whether the government knew this was and have we sent a sample to the to, to the Kremlin for them to verify it's theirs Seamus Milne who was a, a key advisor to Jeremy Corbyn who almost ended you know, these people were almost in Downing Street 
had been on a platform with Vladimir Putin just a few years before. You know, articles in The Guardian had effectively suggested that um, NATO was to blame for what had happened in Crimea. How come these elements? I mean, I think I know the answer, but I'm interested to get John Sweeney's perspective on this. The, the willingness of, I mean, Alex Sanders, a former first minister of Scotland, to have a show on RT. Is, is that just about Alex Salmond and what he's prepared to do for money, or is there something else going on there? Um, I think that um, Russia wants... Uh, it, it, my anxiety about Brexit is that it is a clear policy goal to break up European strength as opposed to Russian strength. And if you have Europe tearing itself apart, then that's a positive for Kremlin policy. That also applies to the United Kingdom, which is why I did a film. You can watch it. Um, it's still up on YouTube about Sputnik. And um, Sputnik was a Russian uh, kind of radio internet-y thing paid for by the Russians. And it's based in Edinburgh. And one of the wonderful, lovely, beautiful Scottish woman who had previously been working in Catalonia um, was in... Um, was there and my first question to her was so uh, what's it like being a tracer <laughs> and it was a joke or was it or was it um by the way i'm not an english nationalist um i'm um i'm um i i wrestle between the labor party and the liberal party continually and i've done my entire life i'm siding with the liberals at the moment because i'm annoyed with Keir about um not standing against Brexit enough, but I see and recognise that Keir is fundamentally a decent person. Jeremy Corbyn, um, so in 2000, the year 2000, I went undercover twice to Chechnya, um, and I saw evidence of a war crime, and I reported it to the Observer and Dispatchers, and then I did a radio documentary about the Russian use of torture against the Chechens, and for both, I went undercover very briefly to Chechnya. I won an Amnesty Award for the second thing. So what was clear in 2000 was that the Russian state had, to my um, satisfaction, had planted bombs murdering Russian citizens in Moscow and two apartment bombs to create a, a black operation which was the casus belli against necessitating the war in Chechnya. And the man who did that was the former head of the FSB, KGB, Vladimir Putin, then the prime minister. He faked real bomb outbreak. He, he, he bombed his own capital, him and his goons, and then blamed it on the Chechens. And then they prosecuted a horrible human rights war where human rights... Uh, were abused in a disgraceful way. Yeah, and, and pretended it wasn't happening. And pretended it wasn't happening. Two people in London um, had a go. I had a go and the, the two, as a reporter, and the, the two people were Jeremy Corbyn and Vanessa Redgrave. Um, and Corbyn in particular was critical of Tony Blair because he was cozying up to Putin. They were hoping he'd be like a new Gorbachev. He wasn't from the get-go. I saw through it straight away. Um, I can remember I was living in the, the Putney constituency at the time. In 2002, I was the only person who voted Liberal um, because of 
um, of, because of Blair's policy on Chechnya. I'm, I'm, but what was so awful about Jeremy Corbyn's switching his, his stance in 20, um, whenever it was, when was the Skripal poisoning? I've forgotten, 2016, 17? Yeah, 16 or 17, yeah. Because it, was, um, it was before the World Cup in 2018. It was in the run-up. Yeah, it was, what was so awful about that was that he had been good about Putin back in the day, and I remembered it. And and I listened, actually, James O'Brien, who's a, a friend of mine, um, he had me on his LBC show, and, and I listened to Jeremy Corbyn live, and he said, what do you think of that, John? And basically what Corbyn did was to, was to echo the Kremlin line perfectly, and, and do exactly what the Kremlin wanted, which was to say that there was, the assumption was that there was no reliable evidence that this was an attack which had been approved by the Kremlin. Once again, you cannot buy Novichok in a shop. It is a poison nerve agent, a chemical weapon made in state-run factories. And we know thanks to the hero heroic good works of people like Bellingcat, where this factory is, the one that's just done, um, um, poison or sort of poison Navalny and I feel it was an awful moment for British democracy when Jeremy Corbyn sided with the Kremlin and lots of polls say that was the moment far more than anti-semitism and the other stuff that, that, um, um, that Corbyn was in my view screwing up that was the moment when in particular working class voters saw Jeremy Corbyn is somebody who couldn't be trusted with power in the country because he didn't fucking believe um, our people over over the Kremlin. And by the way, I know about this because I went to her lab in 1992. I saw how Saddam had gassed the Kurds. I wrote a book about it. Um, I and I know um, a professor of um, emeritus professor. Of, um, chemical toxicology, uh, Professor Alistair Hay, formerly at Leeds University. And I know, and he knows people who work at Porton Down. And the idea that scientists like Alistair would lie about Novichok is just nonsense. It's just nonsense. And by the way, a couple of my mates uh, wrote, uh, Declan Lorne and Adam Patterson wrote um, the, uh, the Salisbury Poisonings. Um, it's really- the player. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. It's wonderful. You must must watch it. I'm going to give. I love Spag Bowl, and I can't cook it. And well, anyone who follows you on Twitter will know this. <laughs> was that a joke? That frying pan was, of Spag Bowl you put on Twitter—an absolute it was, atrocity. It was. It was. It was, it was, it was Tom Watson, who's also a mate. We we all we he's moved, but we uh, we used to drink the same pub as well. Tom Watson, the former deputy leader of the Labour Party, described it as a crime scene. What yeah. it was was it was an anti-carrot in Spag Bowl um, picture, but I had only I always I, I was simmering it. Basically, it's like Irish stew, really, and it's just um, and I simmer it for ages. But I put on a, but there were no carrots in it. That was the point I was making. I think it was a bit of a joke, um, and uh, anyway, you can actually identify kind of raw mincemeat. Now, I'm not going to eat it like that. It's not fucking sushi. Um, um, but but what happened was it got and there was there was a woman, 
there was a friend that's i've got an american friend mike weiss i do a podcast a funny jokey podcast conversation podcast um called uh, the last call the two boozy hacks and mike weiss he's got a friend who's an iraqi woman who's uh, who's um brought up in mosul and she said you know i would you know i lived through the mosul siege and this is worse my spag bolt <laughs> and, and and there was about I love Italy. I love Italy. I love Italy very, very much. I've got a tiny place in Perugia, in Italy, and I love it to bits. And and I've got great Italian friends. And I miss Italy and my Italian friends and all those wonderful bars. All of them, and they miss me. I can tell you. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, I love Italian culture. But I I managed to offend two thousand Italians. So what is this? Got a cattivo, cattivo. Oh my god! And and it was. At the very same moment that my podcast was number one on the Apple Podcast channel, and it was—it struck me as a lovely thing that in life, you know, I am—I did—I made my point after BBC Management, I think, had dealt me, dealt with me unfairly, that I'm still a good storyteller. But boy, am I a rubbish cook! And, <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the delight, the, the simple delight that people had. Uh, with a look at that oh god that's awful and then it became and then I then I thought no I'm going to use this I'm going to weaponize it and uh, so whenever anybody said something nice about the uh, about the podcast I would say spag bowl for you know for Julie spag bowl for Abdul spag bowl uh, for Kev whatever and then and people would then say I really, really like your podcast, but I don't want your spag bowl and I said <laughs> sorry no spag bowl for you and it became a thing and I also think that's, you know, in the the whole thing is that um, no one's perfect, and my cooking is fucking dreadful. Actually, one of my mates, actually, who's had a, I've had roast, he's had roast lamb uh, at my place, and he actually said, "No, you're a good cook." And but hold on, that's a secret. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> Why not? Because uh, because it ruins the joke. <laughs> I thought John Sweeney was a, a relentless broadcaster of the truth. The the, uh, the joke is more, no 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 the joke. But sometimes you can take the piss out of yourself. I'm not okay. I'm not. Um, um, I, I I'm no Nigella, uh, who I know a bit. Uh, I knew her um, her first husband. Um, or so, I can't remember how many times she's been married. But he was a lovely guy called Johnny Diamond who died eventually of um, of. Uh, cancer of the tongue poor man and uh, he was a wonderfully funny lovely guy um story i'm on the observer and i write a magazine piece called the a to z of conspiracy theories and this is about these nutters who believe that the world's hollow and lizards and david ike and all this kind of stuff yeah, you know and the, the duke of edinburgh is a space lizard and um he invited he had a show called the midnight hour on radio five this is back in like 90s i'm guessing 1990 something like this and it starts at midnight and lasts at two o'clock in the morning and um um he had me on and the, and the thing is i didn't want to go home because i lived in as i said um southfields then i didn't want to go home um and i went for a drink in the in the observer pub and the observer was a, tremendous drinking fighting uh, newspaper back in the day it was just it was like one of those bad regiments uh, in the 
in the British Army in Victorian times, the fighting 137, it was like that. Anyway, so I had a drink and then I had another drink and then I had another drink. And at midnight, um, John uh, Diamond goes on air and my friend Martin Bright listened to this um, and he says it's one of the funniest things he's ever heard. He listened to the whole two hours. I said, so I'm joined now by Mr. Kevin Tharg, who is um, uh, a member of the... Um, um, Flat Earth Society, Mr. Ron uh, Turnip, um, who believes the uh, Earth is hollow, and um, uh, Mr. Uh, Stanley Noggis, who believes um, uh, that aliens have taken over um, the royal family. And we're surely to be joined by John Sweeney of The Observer, who's written a, uh, the A to Z conspiracy theories. <laughs> I'm I'm, I'm half dead in a gutter somewhere in Soho. I never, ever make it. Uh, and uh, at, five to, at five to two, Martin's listened to the whole show, and you can hear. And so I'd like to thank, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Stoggis, Mr. Turnip, <laughs> Mr. Nargs, for their interesting insights. Um, and uh, and we, must now we must now assume that John Sweeney has been abducted by aliens. <laughs> Anyway, so John, who's, uh, he's, he wrote a wonderfully, very, very moving book, which I read it, made me cry called Sears about his cancer. But I love that man. Anyway, he, um, uh, I saw him at a party and he said, you can't, um, uh, because I didn't turn up. And then, then he loses his tongue and he has a notebook and it's a really clever way. He has a notebook and he writes some pencil and he writes his gags on a notebook and he still commands a room wonderful gorgeous man and uh, i meet him at a party hi Nigella. hi hi john sort of shamed embarrassed look down he opens his notebook writes you're still a cunt <laughs> <laughs> we can add that to the list of uh, wonderful things you've been called john incredibly we've spoken for nearly two hours which is is a Firstly, let me apologise, because I've kept you for far longer than I, I promised I would. It's a, an abuse of hospitality. I have to say, folks, I loved the spinning image gag about uh, Dominic Cummings being a space alien. And so I, I went, may I eat the baby? May yeah. I eat the baby? <laughs> and, uh, and, it was, and, and also what was lovely was it, it was kind of informal. Like, there were a whole pantomimes about eating the baby, and it kind of like pushed me back into wonderful times at Wimbledon Panto with those kind of similar gags. And it's just, I thought it's lovely. So I'm, um, I, I, it's a complete waste of two hours, but I'm happily, happy to waste it. Oh, John, it's been an absolute pleasure. And incredibly, even after two hours, there's still so much more I could have asked you. So hopefully at some point in the future, I can have you back on. Yes. Uh, we can but, go to a pub, hopefully. Yeah, oh, for fuck's sake. Oh, God. Oh, I miss pubs so much. A pub and a decent kebab. Yeah, a, a decent. Yeah, I mean, what you want is seven pints and a kebab, and then and then, and then the world is good, and uh, you know, and then and then remembering where you live—that's always a test for me. Um, <laughs> where I live or where you live? Where I live, because uh, that can get confusing. Uh, and then um, and then we start drinking. Uh, you know. Yeah. Then, exactly. Uh, yeah, and um, and hopefully that will all come back. Fingers John, crossed. it's been an absolute treat. Thank you so much. Wow.
I just didn't want that to end. What a what a two hours it's been for all of us. That was just sensational. And I just loved... You know when people are telling a story and they go off on a tangent and they go off on another tangent, but it all makes sense and, and they're always a good tangent? Well, that's a really good sign. All these tangents were good. And I never, ever thought that the line he would deliver about meeting Vladimir Putin was going to be that one about wanting to throw up all over the um, thingy. So <laughs> what an incredible thing to think and say. It's just magic. But that was, oh man, that just made me want to be in a pub with John Sweeney, just asking him questions and listening to stories. So hopefully I get to do that one day as well. But what an amazing guest. And I mean, it could have been another six hours. I know it was only two hours, but I still had loads of road left. I wanted to ask him about so many other things. Um, So I hope he'll come back on again in the future. I know this is an extra long episode, but... I think there's nothing I'd take out of that conversation. I just think it was absolutely magnificent. I wanted to leave it all in because I want you to have the benefit of all the stuff I got from John, from listening to all that. And it's all just, I mean, you could just, Scientology is just in itself an incredible subject matter. Um, and Putin and Navalny, uh, just there's so many different, Trump, you know, there's so many different areas that he's been right in the middle of, which is just incredible. Um, and, and what a fantastic guest. So thank you for downloading. Uh, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for all your lovely emails about the Hillary Benn episode and all your tweets. Um, it, he was really popular, unsurprisingly. You know, a, a really thoughtful, reasonable person proved to be a very popular guest, as I'm sure uh, John Sweeney will prove to be. So please share this with your friends and family, um, whether privately or on social media. Uh, if you're listening to this on iTunes, start the year with um, with an act of... Is charity the right word? Um, just a good deed and, and leave a leave an iTunes review. Um, a nice one if you can find it within yourself to do that and um, I'll see you next week thank you for downloading I hope you're okay and uh, yeah that's all from me ta Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.